contemporary style cultures that was produced in 2015. She was also the editor of Modest Fashion, Styling Bodies, Meditating Faith. In 2018, Brianna was a consulting curator for the exhibition Contemporary Muslim Fashions at the Fine Art Museums of San Francisco. Please give a very welcoming to the guests, Brianna. Art history at the Princess Laura bin Abdul 
on image making, representations of women in the art and career of Sophia Gonzaga, which first brought her excellent scholarship to my attention. Since then, Iman has forged ahead with her art practice, her research, and curation, including recently and significantly curating the Saudi National Pavilion at the 58th Venice Biennale this year in 2019. Also in her many contributions to the daily newspapers, Al Riyadh and Al Jazeera, and her art consultancy for individuals and organizers, Iman throws light on forgotten and sometimes misrepresented aspects of Saudi and Arab culture for both local and international audiences. Iman's goal in her work is to encourage acceptance of cultural differences. And we turn now to how the fashion industry deals with differences of dress cultures. Because, as I say, this talk goes out to an international audience on the University Podcast channel, I'm going to be asking Iman later to consider how the now hot-button global fashion category of modest fashion fits or not into the Saudi Gulf fashion industry. Even among the brands and designers around the world who pioneered the niche modest fashion market over the last decade, few see modest as an uncomplicated or completely accurate term. Sometimes it's the best term available, sometimes people don't like it. Some find it tactfully useful in the market, others prefer alternative phrasing, for example, the British designer Bartos Chohan, who uses the phrase conservative chic for her tagline. Here in the Gulf, some designers and brands I speak to see the increased global interest in modest fashion as an opportunity to market overseas. Others dislike the term, thinking that it limits the understanding of them as fashion designers. After all, if you operate in a part of the world where cultures of modesty habitually inform dress and behavior for women and men, there may seem little need to be constrained by a classification that originated in contexts where consumers, where women struggled to dress modestly and fashionably. Yet we are right now in a moment where modest fashion is being mainstreamed as a category within global fashion without any reference to cultural distinct practice. All fashion classifications change over time, so maybe we need a new language and fresh descriptions to talk about the way in which women are styling themselves for work here and abroad. At this moment of opportunity for Saudi women, we're fortunate to have Iman here tonight to guide us through our consideration of how the flowering of Saudi and GCC design might enrich the business and leisure attire of women visiting the kingdom and beyond. We're going to talk for about 20 minutes and then we're going to open for questions and contributions. So we very much look forward to hearing your thoughts. Yeah, I can someone please hear over all this noise. Yeah? Okay, good. We'll carry on. Iman, let's talk a bit about the consumer experience. Now, currently, you work in a women-only environment where you can engage in personal style expression through fashion and appearance every day. And 
for the benefit of our international listeners, I should explain that this is because the enormous and impressive PMU campus is a women-only space, so you can remove your abaya at the gate. If you worked in a gender-mixed workplace, how might this impact on your shopping habits and how you feel about dressing for work in relation to the image of protection that you make at work? Yes, so if I would work in a mixed environment in Saudi Arabia, it would be good for my wallet, <laughs> but it would not be good for my sense of fashion, expressing myself, being in touch with my feminine side. So this is the thing, there's a positive th uh, side of the equation, but there's still something will be missed. So remember, we had a conversation about uh, sometimes I will get uh, job opportunities that I will be considered only because I will be losing that part. But again, it depends on the individual, how a woman would uh, define modesty and uh, what would she consider a modest dress. So, because if yeah. you were working in an environment where on all day, either because you were in a mixed workplace or perhaps your workplace was in a building where you would be going in and out of corridors that had men in them as well. Would you have several different abayas? Yeah, I would, but it will be not as much as uh, I would have. Uh, the number of outfits I would have for my university. So in my university, my daily habit, I would have a new outfit every day. But if I don't work in a mixed environment, where will I have uh, abayas? I doubt I will change my abaya on a daily basis. I think I might change it twice a week. And so, I'm, you can tell me later whether I'm wrong, but my understanding is that whereas women may have many different garments yeah. that they buy with the different trends to wear in a women-only in a family environment, Mostly women have far fewer number of abayas. In the same way as in London, I wouldn't have 25 different winter coats. I'd have one and maybe a couple of jackets that I bought last year that I'm still wearing. So when you're working at university, you're putting together a new fashion outfit every day from a larger wardrobe. So in terms of how you feel when you're projecting yourself professionally, do you see women in abaya wearing workplaces where the sorts of abayas they wear for leisure are not the same as the abayas they wear for a professional location? Um, again, it depends on the person, but I think, yes, they will be having different abayas for work and for leisure. Probably they will be working in a more conservative mixed uh, space, so they will need to be also attending to men happy about seeing flashy uh, colors and designs or they might not be taken as serious as they would be when they were more uh, uh, classic abayas. So, and again, this is just my assumption. I cannot really make it. So we'll hear from the audience in a moment. Now, many Saudi Emirati and Gulf women regard the abaya as a cultural garment which fits fashion conventions and habits here, but which they don't generally wear when they travel abroad. And in response to this, we've seen the development of travel wardrobe, 
as a niche category within the regional fashion industry, and there's some wonderful products out there. Now, I know that you have a travel wardrobe, so I'd like to break that down a little bit into its constituent parts. When you travel outside the kingdom for work, do you wear the same type of thing everywhere, or does it depend on location and circumstance? And I ask because I know that some Saudi women have said to me when they're in another GCC, Gulf Cooperation Council country, they'll often wear their abaya because it signifies that they're Saudi and that they're very happy to have that as something that people way that they're dressed, both Saudi and Egypt from, from the Gulf region. Is that true for you? Yeah, it is true. But also for my travel uh, wardrobe, I will also consider this, the mission that I'm going to. So if I'm going uh, as a student back then when I was studying in the UK, I would make sure to only buy certain things that people might not uh, basically um, I think I'm not that serious enough. For example, wearing uh, expensive clothing wouldn't be accepted because students who I sit with, uh, they don't have a monthly income. I have a monthly income, so they don't now know that. So may, they may not take me seriously because I think I come from a rich family or so on. So I make sure that I buy from similar shops with a similar range of uh, so that you fit price. In. Yeah. But in your professional work yeah. now, for example, when you go to yes. Venice for the Biennale, yeah. are you wearing an abaya? No. What are you wearing? Although the artist chose to wear an abaya, she's tried to persuade me. And I bought an abaya, but I didn't think it represented the, the image I want to uh, present that day because whatever design that I will choose, it will still be um, less significant. And on the day, being the curator, you want to stand out. It might sound selfish, but this is just a once in a lifetime opportunity. So I chose to wear dresses. I actually had to go through a, a, a period of three months looking for the appropriate dress for every occasion I thought I would for so something for the opening of the day, then for the inauguration in the evening, then I expected to be invited to other parties for other national pavilions, so I chose one in specific for the Emirati pavilion, knowing the aesthetic that they will be expecting me to wear and so on. Yeah, and I think this is very interesting because in the research that I've been doing about modest fashion in workwear, We've been looking at women in the UK working for faith-based employers, regardless of their own background. And then also our Western women who've traveled here for work, who until very, very recently needed to wear an abaya. So I'm interested in how do they get it? How do they feel? Are they wearing an abaya for a 25-year-old going to a party? Or are they wearing an abaya suitable for a 55-year-old businesswoman? How would they know? But we also know that in very many circumstances, women are judged more than men in what they wear for work. You know, in London, if you work in finance and you're a man, you can wear the same old suit every day and have really bad hair, and no one's going to judge you for it. Women tend to be judged much more. And so then what's very interesting is you're talking about this nuance of also, if you go to a meeting in Dubai, you might 
inaugurated an event at the Venice Biennale at the Emirati Pavilion. Yeah. Some of those regional aesthetic presumptions transfer transnationally. So when you go to Dubai, am I right? You would wear a nabaya? Yes, I do. And even to Bahrain, knowing that in Bahrain, not necessarily women with a headscarf would wear a baya. I still wore a baya because I know that they will be expecting me to because I was invited by Sheikh Hamai, the Minister of Culture, uh, as a representative of South Arabia. So I thought it's uh, more appropriate to be wearing a baya. Now, Travel wardrobes have emerged as a really, really interesting area of design enterprise here. And it has a crossover as well. But travel wardrobes are generally, by definition, something that you only wear some of the time. When you moved to the UK in 2010, you needed an everyday wardrobe because you were going to be there for several years for PhD study. And what's more, arriving in the UK in 2010 was at a time before modest fashion was having its moment. At that moment, many mainstream brands and fashion media were still often quite aversive to the idea of modest fashion. And it was quite hard for shoppers in the UK and around the world to find a choice of styles that didn't involve layering three different garments under a dress to make it work. So, casting your mind back several years, did you arrive with the right clothes or did you need to shop? Of course I needed to shop uh, for the weather change. I was going in April, but I knew it will be still relatively cold to Ria. So I have been started shopping since December. But also I had a problem. I come from a family where I was the first one to wear hijab traveling. So I didn't have uh, an example to look up to. So I was actually learning how to wear modest clothes. I didn't. I bought all sorts of things, and then when I tried it on, it, I didn't. To me, it didn't look modest enough. So I felt like going, uh, becoming a teenager again, where your body is changing. It's not changing. Uh, at least your, the way you look at your body is changing your perspective. So you become less confident. Uh, uh, so this was the case for the first two years. And within these two years, uh, not just the, I actually learned how to wear, how I was happy about what I wore, not because of the emerging uh, shops, because back then, until I finished my PhD, I had no access to these shops because they were in the GCC and I was there. But I actually learned from the hijabi blocks, especially the Kuwaiti ones. So I learned that, oh, I can wear a shift dress I can choose the right shoes to make it dressier, more feminine if I want to, and then I could wear a dressing gown and wearing a boot or so on. So I have to actually uh, attribute that to the internet more than the market. And these were Kuwaiti fashion bloggers. Yeah, yeah. And this is really interesting because we will think now about digital influencers, they're part of the fashion industry now. And what's very fascinating is that when social media emerged, first of all blogs, and then Tumblr, some of you remember that, and then Instagram and other social media channels. Modest fashion bloggers were there at the beginning on every single genre, whether it was a personal style blog or a topic blog and so on. And when I interviewed in the UK some of the 
one especially bloggers if you think now about bloggers they have their own styles that's what makes them instagrammers that's what makes them popular they have their vision and their aesthetic well a number of these early bloggers were researching and posting styles that were not their own because they were hearing that there was such a need so a woman who was a modest press from the uk but never wore a bias did a couple of features on a bias because her followers were asking her for advice they were being like their own magazine yeah. so it's interesting that you were finding from kuwait yes. advice um, you said to me that dressing in this way Skirts, which is the 
something I really love. I'm not a traveler's person. So I would get traveler on a daily basis just for the practicality, but not to meet someone. Uh, this fine body type, I believe, looks nicer in skirts. In England, it was impossible to wear a skirt. Like even in summer, you know, especially in Brighton, it's very windy. Yeah, so this is one of the things that I really was missing. And I think this is where fashion and dress is massively important because if you can't feel comfortable in what you're wearing and if you can't feel like yourself and if you can't feel like someone in that particular role, whether you're in finance or the creative arts or you're a teacher or a medic, then it will impede the way that you work and it will affect the way that people judge you. And so this nuance of detail is very, very important. What's interesting, and this is my last topic before we open for a conversation, is your experiences studying for several years in the UK is kind of the reverse lens of the experience of Western women visiting Saudi Arabia for work, where they need to wear an abaya. Most of the women I've interviewed for this research do not have an abaya in their wardrobe. And in fact, even women I spoke to who visited Saudi Arabia before, for example, for Hajj or for Umrah for pilgrimage, the abaya that they bought for that didn't feel to them like a tailored workwear abaya. It was something looser, softer, or else it's just a bit tired by then. And so they had to get something else. So I'm very interested in how women acquire the abaya that they wear here. And also the Saudi women, the actors, fashion mediators, giving them guidance. Many women have had the experience of being asked, you know, there's a colleague coming from overseas, could you send something or get something to send to the hotel? You've taken me shopping. You know, I like to think I'm a very competent fashion shopper, but I'm not competent with the five million styles of buyers that are available here. So my question for you, and we'll also ask our audience, is if a visiting Westerner turns up at a business meeting wearing an abaya that doesn't fit very well, that she's not managing too well, or that is just not quite appropriate, do you judge? Do Saudis look at her and think, that's not quite right? Well, I would like to believe that they won't judge because culturally, judging isn't accepted. But it depends on uh, how close they feel towards that person. So they may volunteer helping them by something new or different, they may give them something. But I also doubt that they will do this unless the other person hints that they are not comfortable with what they are wearing. I'm going to ask a question to the audience. When you see someone wearing an abaya, can you tell from a distance if it's a visitor from the way they're handling it, the way they're managing it? I'm seeing hands up, yes. One, two, three, okay, hands up, no, you can't tell. Oh. <laughs> so the majority is that you can. What is it that gives it away? For me, I don't think I can judge, to be honest. Like, some people would be living for 10 years and they still, some Saudis will still struggle with the niqab also, although they wear it all the time. So I don't think it, it gives uh, a clue whether they're new. And 
Also, I would like to believe that abaya is easy to wear. I, I might be wrong, but it's just buttons or without buttons. The, the headscarf might be a challenge uh, or the niqab. I loved when you said you like to think it's easy to wear because quite often Saudi colleagues and contacts say to me, Rina, why are you doing this research? The buy is so simple, it's so elegant, you just put it on. And I say, well, yeah, for you, you know, how often am I going to shut it in the car door or thread on it when I'm standing up? It would be like if I went to India and I was asked to wear a sari. No one would say that was easy if you haven't spent years learning how to wear. And just to close, you also said though that of course Saudis families have worked abroad when they were young. When they come back then they're also learners at wearing the abaya. They may have dressed modestly when their family was based in the United States or Europe, but then they come back here as teenagers or young women and they're also learners. I've learned a lot from our conversation. I want to thank you so very much indeed for your participation. And of course, I want to thank Dr. Iman Al-Jabreen for her very, very generous thoughts with us today. Thank you. And also, we thank you for introducing everything tonight. Thank you very much for having you.